Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a bird, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. For a fresh new start MJ Network will bring you there So let's talk about it When life and on the air Good morning everyone, this is Fran Lewis from Rainy Westchester And this is going to be fantastic Because Boyd and Beth Morrison are here And their new blockbuster 10 star hit The Lawless Land is outrageous. If you didn't order it, what are you waiting for, people? So this this took place a long time ago, and I really like the characters, and the highways are patrolled by marauders and murderers, not safe to go outside. But my favorite character, Gerald Fox, well, his family reputation has been tarnished, and I'll let you tell them the rest. Good morning. How are you? I hope you're in a sunnier place than I am. Yes, we are We are in Houston right now, so we're glad to be here. Yeah, thank you very much for having us. This is awesome. I am thrilled. You have, you have no idea. Um, this book really is, is terrific, and I have hands out for this, by the way. Um, there are a lot of people that want it, and I told them to go on Amazon, to be very honest. It's a better way to get okay, it. Okay, well, thank you. We're happy whenever readers get the book in their hands. So, uh, could you give us a brief summary and tell us about how you created Gerald Fox? And, and by the way, I love Lady Isabel. I really oh, great. Do. Yeah. So, so Gerard Fox is a, a knight in the 14th century. The book takes place in 1351, right after the worst of the Black Plague, although there are still outbreaks of it going on. And he is a dispossessed knight who has lost his land and his reputation, and he is on a quest to get it back. And during this quest, on a lonely road in southeast England, he comes across a noblewoman who is on the run from um, dastardly villains who are trying to kill her. He comes to her rescue and finds out her name is Lady Isabel, and she is fleeing her brutal fiancé, for a reason that comes up uh, a little later in the story. And what uh, they find out is that they have a common enemy that is after them at any cost for a priceless relic in their possession. Wow. I hope you could hear me because I'm on speakerphone. So why is she yeah. running away? Tell us about, I don't like this guy, Lord Tunbridge, and what he asked, what, what was he after and why? So um, the um, the book was actually created. Um, you know, Boyd is a, a best-selling author, and I'm a medievalist, so this seemed like a really good combination. And when Boyd asked me to participate in the book, I said, "The one thing is, there has to be a manuscript at the heart of the story." And so um, we had this manuscript being owned by Lady Isabel in her family. And her fiancé is after it um, because he thinks that he can change the cultural landscape of Europe if he's in possession of it. And the reason we, we Beth wanted a manuscript is because she is the senior curator of manuscripts at the Getty Museum. And she has, she has been studying mm. medieval manuscripts for mm. 25 years now. And um, she, in fact, was working on 14th century manuscripts when I came to her with the idea for writing this book. And that was one of the reasons we decided to set it in the 14th century, because mm. it, was such a, it was such an era that was great for a tale like this, because it was a real time of upheaval. As Boyd said, it was just after the Black Death, um, which was totally mm. unintentional with the pandemic now. We actually started this book in 2018, but it turned out mm. to be very prescient, and actually, after the pandemic, after Boyd and I have lived through the pandemic and are continuing to live through it, that's exactly like what Gerard Fox and Lady Isabel are going through. So we actually had a lot more sort of um, feeling for what they were going through in this post-pandemic world, uh, just like the two of us were going through it in real life. 
I wish they weren't still going through it in real life. I just spoke to a medical provider for another reason, to do some research for something, and he said the spike is it's getting higher where I am anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, we have a lot of friends who have it right now, sadly. Yeah, it's it's horrible because somehow they don't know what they're doing. What can I say? So who is Basquin and who the Molina? What did he think he would become the next pope? And somebody doesn't quite agree with him. Yeah, so, so Molyneux uh, is a cardinal and um, yeah. is uh, what, excuse me? No, I hear you. So cardinal, cardinal Molyneux is, um, has designs on the papacy, and he, he is uh, his son that he fathered illegitimately um, mm. is his right-hand man and, and um, foot soldier in trying to get to attain this goal of his to become Pope. And so um, Fox and Isabel are in possession of something that he believes will um, let him become Pope at some point. And um, how people, um, their, their lives revolved around the church. And so um, for, for somebody like that, that powerful mm-hmm. to be after them meant that they had the 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 greatest possible resources at their disposal to to mm-hmm. go after these these two people. Yeah, and, and yeah. it was great to make Cardinal Molyneux the the bad guy mm-hmm. because, as Boyd said, if you're that high in the church, it was the single most powerful organization in Western mm-hmm. Europe in this time period. And so he had all sorts of people he could put after them. But it also was a time period when things like relics that this this object that Lady Isabella and Gerard Fox are trying to protect, those had a great currency in medieval society, and they could make the difference, but kind of make or break um, a cathedral if they had a really important relic, things like that. So it really was a very valuable tool, and it was great for mm. a plot, but it meant that um, there, the stakes were very high. Well, that's probably why I got eye strain reading the book in two hours, because I couldn't put it down <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't happen too often. Lately, I've been getting some like, "Why am I doing this?" So, I wonder. I wonder sometimes how the, if the Catholic Church is still, in some ways, who you know and what you know. So, how and why is he involved with Tonebridge, and why did he want the icon, Bastian? Everybody wanted it. I mean, Tonebridge. What did they? What did they want it? Yeah. So, because the the church was so powerful mm. at the time period. Um, people, especially the Pope, could really um, give a lot. So the, the kind of ties between the nobility and the church at this time period were really, really important. And in fact, at the beginning of the book, um, we have a scene involving uh, Thomas Beckett. And that just shows mm-hmm. you the kind of power, because the story of Thomas Beckett is that he was a powerful prelate in the church, mm. and he became so powerful that the King of England really saw him as a threat. And there's mm. some debate about it, but the general idea is that the king basically wanted Thomas Beckett dead. And so when Thomas Beckett was then assassinated, yeah. the king of England actually had to do penance on his knees uh, mm. to members of the church. So that just gives you a sense in real history about what the ties between the church and the nobility could be, that they even yeah. even someone like a king could be brought to their knees. So it really was something that the church could do for you. And there was even debate, um, even in our time period, about mm-hmm. Thomas Beckett's death because the king said, will no one rid me of this meddlesome monk uh, mm-hmm. to his court? And some of the knights there took that to mean that he wanted Beckett dead. And so they that's what they went and did and killed him in Canterbury Cathedral. And um, But there's, you know, it's kind of... A, the mob mentality of, you know, it would be a shame if something mm. happened to that guy. Yeah. yeah. And so so there's still some debate about whether the king explicitly ordered his death or it was just that these knights took it upon themselves. And so in the story, we wanted to convey this information to the reader, but mm. we didn't want to make it an info dump that that was showing the author uh, the author showing off their knowledge of the information. So what we did <laughs> was we had um, Gerard Fox and Lady Isabel debate have this debate about whether the king actually ordered Beckett's death or not. 
and it, it also illuminated some some character um, between the, the two main characters so that you could learn something about them while also learning about the history of where they were going. Yeah, because I think in this time period, men um, didn't tend to think of women as particularly intellectual. And so it's nice to have Gerard Fox debating with Lady Isabel because mm. she could show that she was interested in intellectual pursuits. And he's surprised, but actually delighted to kind of find a sparring partner. And that just helps them debate their, you know, develop their relationship. And that might, in that time period, that was very unusual for men who uh, would have appreciated that from from a woman. Um, and so it's kind of as if they they found each other and and they were the exact right people to find each other. Well, then it leaves me to skip a few questions that I'll come back to because here's my, my primary great question here. <laughs> um, I love Lady Isabel. First of all, I have to thank you for creating a, a character that's not a wimp. And that's not a friend. <laughs> She is not a wimp. I know. She's not, and she's independent. That's why I love her. She's also very book-learned, which is rarer, and skilled with a bow and arrow, which I've always wanted to learn to use. And most women during the, that time period cannot be. So how did, how did you create her, and how would she embark on a journey like this? Because she had to escape, and yet they found her, Tonebridge and Bastion. How dare they find her? So how did you do that? <laughs> Yeah, so we when we started to create this book, we really wanted to draw on the fact that we were a brother-sister team, and so we had sort of the female perspective and the male perspective. So we really wanted a strong female character and a strong male character to interact. And mm-hmm. um, so when we were coming up with the plot, um, I, I really wanted to integrate some actual aspects of the Middle Ages that maybe people don't know about. So um, one of the key things, um, as Boyd said at the beginning, is that um, Fox has been dispossessed of his land. So he's sort of on his own quest, and then Lady Isabel is trying to protect this relic, and it really is happenstance that they come together, except that then they find out that they have a common enemy. Um, And so that is something that really brings them together and makes sense of the plot, why they want to continue on this journey, and they both need to escape the same person and protect the same thing. Um, so that's how they that's how they actually find each other, and then they sort of grow closer over uh, the course of this journey because they find in themselves, as Boyd said, um, the idea that they're sort of a kindred spirit. And one of the things about the book that we wanted to do was set it as much authentically as possible in the Middle Ages, but also have the characters be relatable for modern audiences. And so that's why we have the characters be a little bit outside of their time. And that was something that Boyd could really help with. Yeah, and and one of the reasons um, Lady Isabel is such an interesting and strong character was because while it was unusual at the time period for women to have any kind of um, agency or interests like bows and arrows or um, or reading, um, it, there are examples in this time period, right, Beth? Yeah, so um, one of the things that I researched, obviously, is the 14th century. And in the 14th century, um, we do know of some really important authors. Um, one of the ones who was active um, just after our time period, more around 1400, was uh, a female author named Christine de Pizan. And she was actually a sought-after author from her time period who worked for the highest nobility, even the kings of the time period. And so it was nice to be able to sort of shed a spotlight on some of those women because they did exist and they were successful in their time periods. And so we wanted to bring some of that into Lady Isabel so that it would both resonate with contemporary audiences but be true to the time period. And there were more adventurous women, too. Of course, everybody knows the story of Joan of Arc, which is not long after the time period of our book. But also there is a uh, woman who uh, went on pilgrimage throughout Europe on her own, had children um, while she was doing this, and went to the Holy Land, went to to Rome, went mm-hmm. all over Europe. And so it's really, even though Lady Isabel is unusual, she is not um, 
unheard of in this time period. Yeah, and the woman that Boyd is talking about is a really interesting woman named Marjorie Kemp, and she wrote a book, actually, about her pilgrimages, and it is widely considered the first autobiography um, mm. from the entire Middle Ages, and people still read it today. I had to read it in graduate school. She was a fascinating woman, and telling of these things from her perspective. She was a mystic, and so she had a very spiritual relationship with um, uh, Christianity at this time period, and that is a lot about what she um, was actually writing about, but we can glean these facts about different places that she went on her own, as Boyd said. So there mm. were intrepid women in the time period, and that's exactly what we modeled Lady Isabel after. Yeah, and Lady Isabel um, is, is uh, in very, as you said, very involved in the action, and um, she probably saves Gerard Fox even more than Gerard Fox saves her. And so we wanted to not only make her intellectual, but, but also part of the action. Well, she was. You know, so I have to say, um, as an educator, I don't think enough students know enough about that time period. I don't think they're taught back then. And I mean, and I taught every grade in their, in, their, in their mother. And I taught elementary school and some, you know, junior high school. I don't know how much history they would even know about this time period. And that would really be great for kids to, to learn about it or for you to go in and talk to them about it. So the, the manuscript yeah, is what... Yeah, I more. Yeah. It, I and, can't hear you. And we, um, part of the, the reason that we wrote this book was because um, I was looking at, at um, writing, uh, I was leaving um, the Clive Gustler Oregon Files series at the time, and I, I knew I wanted to write something else, but I didn't know what. And mm-hmm. one of the genres I was considering was historical thriller. And um, mm-hmm. I knew about World War II and some other um, time periods. And I was talking to my wife about what what time period should I write about? And she goes, well, if you want to write a historical thriller, you've got a built-in co-author. And I said, oh, really? Who's that? And she said, oh, yeah. uh, your sister, <laughs> who is a, a world authority on the Middle Ages? And I said, oh, well, that would be a great idea. And so I called Beth up, and she said. Yep, yep, I'm on board immediately, immediately on board. And it's interesting what you say about education, um, Fran, because I really yeah. – I think of this book as a continuation of my work in terms of exposing people and getting them interested in the Middle Ages. And Boyd and I have yeah. already heard from some early readers where they're like, I didn't know that word, and I looked it up, and I never thought I'd be interested in the Middle Ages, but I really am. And so if, if you know, we, we're primarily here to entertain, right? Like we, you know, want this book to be a fast-paced action series, but if it also inspires interest in the Middle Ages, I could not be more tickled. Yeah, I think that it would be really interesting. Seriously, here becomes one of my brilliant ideas. Um, as, as an educator and a family who's in junior high school and in, uh, going into sixth grade, I make a bet that if you wrote a YA book or a middle school book, they would want to read it. Well, at least my, the, my, my, my nephews would, I'm pretty sure. They would want to read something like that in order to learn about it in a more interesting context other than the social studies book that's outdated after you write it and read it. Yeah. Seriously. Well, and we wrote this book to be really um, readable by by any age because you know there's no real. It is. There's no foul language, and there is yeah. violence, but it's not graphic violence, and so you know it's really more of an adventure story, and mm-hmm. so I think you know younger people could very well read it. Yeah. Well, they couldn't read my copy because I've destroyed it. I underlined, circle, write. <laughs> questions and highlight what I want to talk about. <laughs> they couldn't even get well, great. That means you have to no, find I have... another copy for them. <laughs> yeah, seriously, yeah. Um, all of my books are donated to either a foreign oh, nice. country. They are they're donated to Ghana and Nigeria for the two porters in my building. And yours and a few others, uh, my doctor has some people that are want reading, so I bring him. I can't go to the office without books, he said. So when I go next Wednesday, okay. just to say hi, I have to bring you a book. So how does the cardinal try and control the outcome? And what is this manuscript and icon? Why is it? What does everybody want it? And they're they're willing to kill for it. Well, we you know we we try to make sure that we 
we keep spoilers to a minimum when we talk about the book, yeah. so it's really hard to uh, to go into detail about this kind of stuff. But there, okay, we won't have to. Beth, yeah, but of course, Beth, um, you know, because of her specialty, was that was one of the requirements when I brought her on board. She said that that this story has to revolve about around a manuscript of some kind, and so she actually got mm-hmm. to design the you know the exact look of the manuscript and how it was carried carried so the box it comes in is very critical to the story too and um it's there's something about the manuscript that that we're trying to yeah. talk around but not really give away but there's something in, about the manuscript that has has a relic in it that would be so valuable it would literally be the most valuable object in the world if it was if it was the real thing um it mm. would make the hope diamond look like like a, a a rock that would be worthless um and so whoever's in possession of it and could prove its authenticity which we we also put in the manuscript a reason to believe that it's the real thing then um it would be venerated by anybody who saw it and so whoever possessed it and brought mm-hmm. it to the public would be seen as as somebody who is invincible, invincible and holy, and uh, somebody to be worshipped. And so that's why the the Cardinal Molyneux wants to get his hands on it. Yeah, and I know. The, the reason that um, that that um, Gerard Fox and Lady Isabel have it is because it was um, you learn this in the story that her family was responsible for this manuscript, and her brutal fiance just wants to sell it off. And so she does not want that to happen, and so that's why they go on the run. And, Fran, one of my favorite parts about working on this book was coming up with the manuscript and describing the binding Mm -hmm. and describing the illuminations inside and coming up with a convincing backstory and and how they're going to – to to make Mm. sure that they know that it's real and how they're going to convince people. And so that was, you know, that was largely my job Mm. on this book, was to come up with those kinds of convincing medieval details, and it was really fun. That's hard. And I I read all of your destinations. That's my next question. I read everywhere you went to. I felt like I was there by the descriptions that you gave. I really did. And the only thing that was missing were the pictures of the places. That would have been cool. Yeah. So each well, we're, destination. We're hoping, we're hoping that, that when, as people are reading it, they either have been to these locations and and recognize them and, mm-hmm. and are, are, are tickled by what they see, or it, it inspires them to go read about them or even go visit them. And uh, so what we did was the, the story takes place in Western Europe, and they they, mm-hmm. they traveled through England, France, and Italy. And so, to do our research, we actually traveled to England, France, and Italy in February of 2019, and um, basically followed the path that that they follow. And what was what was cool about it is that we the, all the places that we include in the story uh, existed 670 years ago. But they still exist today, and and they're very similar to what they would have appeared as in the 14th century. And so mm-hmm. it was very fun to imagine ourselves in in Fox and Isabel's uh, place while they're going through these fantastical um, locations. And um, and in fact, we got to visit one that. Um, we were very glad that we got to visit it at the time. Yeah, so when one of the places, of course, that we had to feature in the book was medieval Paris, because it, everybody thinks of Paris in the Middle Ages. And um, for my job at the Getty, I probably go to Paris three or four times a year to do research mm-hmm. or look at things, whatever. Um, but I'm always very focused on my work. And so it had actually been decades since I had been in Notre Dame Cathedral. But boys said, no, 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 we should really go so we can you know, telling the story about what it was like to walk into this cathedral, what they would have seen. And Mm -hmm. so we went, we were so glad because we actually were there just two months before the terrible fire um, that burned down a great portion of the roof of the cathedral. 
And so mm. we had a chance to see it. And I never would have done that unless we had been writing this book. So I felt very grateful even on a personal level for having having had that opportunity because I don't know when we're going to have a chance to go back into the Slavon. That was so sad with that fire. I know. They had it all over the news. That was so, oh, my God. That, that, that oh, was heartbreaking. I, I can tell you. <laughs> it was really very shocking. And, and that's the amazing thing is that, you know, I think we all think of, you know, a fire burning down a cathedral as being something that would happen in the 14th century. So it was so shocking to happen in our own time period. I mean, there hadn't been a fire yeah. at Nostradamus Cathedral for like 800 years, and it was in, within our own lifetimes that it happened. And I think that was something also about the book that will strike people is that, you know, we yeah. think of the Black Death, and we always thought of that as something in the very, very distant past. And now all of us in the world today have lived through a pandemic. And in the early days of the pandemic, we did exactly what they would have done in the 14th century. We all huddled in our houses and worried because there was nothing we could do. And I think that feeling of helplessness was really something that as modern people relying on modern medicine and all that, we had really not become accustomed to as a society. And so I think the book will really have resonance in terms of the aftermath of the Black Death and what our characters are going through. Yeah. And again, we started writing this book long before the COVID pandemic happened, so we had oh. no idea that our book would be so relevant <laughs> yeah. to today's world. I know it's 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 scary, and who would ever think that in, it's almost three years, two, end of two years that it's not going anywhere ever until yeah. they figure out how to make it go away or at least temper it without having a vaccine well, every exactly four months. The same for the Black Death because it, the Black yeah, Death know. came back with vengeance in the 17th century. So yeah, it, I know. It continues, I mean, you, we still have um, outbreaks of bubonic plague today, even in the United States, and they don't, because we have medicine and we've had it for so long, it can be ameliorated, but it still is with us. I know. There's, well, somebody has the monkey poor uh, disease also that was on my news this morning. So, Tonebridge, he's horrible. Why is he so horrible? Yeah, and how did yeah. you create him? I don't like this guy at all. Yeah, we well, we wanted the, the antagonists to be very powerful so that our, yeah, he our heroes would have a lot to go up against. And, um, you know, the, the, as we had said, that, that Fox and Isabel are kind of, they're almost people out of time. They're ahead of their time, really, in this uh, medieval era. But we wanted to show people who were, who were really rooted in that, that era and had a lot at stake to keep, the, the status quo. And so Lord Conbridge is, is an earl in, in England, and uh, but he aspires to be more. He's all about, um, you know, loyalty and servitude to himself, and he's also about his status and and his um, legacy. And so his his uh, betrothed leaving him like that is the worst possible offense that that could happen to him. And so he he is a hunter and um is is well known for hunting down anybody who uh is who betrays him. And so he will not give up until he he gets Isabel back and makes her pay for what she's done to him. And we had a really good time. We wanted to make sure that these characters were more fully developed. So, um, as you probably read in the book, Fran, they each have a backstory yeah. that helps explain yeah, how they came to that point in their lives. Yeah, and we've, we've added flashbacks later in, in the writing process to flesh out their the backstory, and you can see what had brought them to this, this point in their lives. And um, we think that really helps kind of make them feel more three-dimensional okay i have a, a an odd question here but i'm not going to give i'm going to sort of answer i'll ask the question in a roundabout way because i don't want to give it away the scene that bothered me was the one with the sheriff how did you create that and i got a box of tissues at the end of that one seriously well there with the with the sheriff yeah he um, had scruples well, and stuff and Something happens, and I was like, "Huh?" Yeah, 
Well, you know that there 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 were good people in this time period, but that didn't always help oh, yeah. them in, in their lives, and and in fact could could bring bring their downfall. Um, and so, yeah, Fox and Isabel run into a sheriff um, who later runs into the bad guys and some of the social and cultural outcomes of the Black Death that we were talking about because in a time period when, you know, 30 to 40 percent of the entire population died and probably disproportionately in the lower classes because of their living conditions, it meant that for the first time in medieval history there was a labor shortage. And that meant that laborers for the first time had some bargaining power. And so what you find is that after the Black Death, all of a sudden the laborers could sell their labor, labor to the highest bidder instead of having a glut on the labor market. And that really, you know, basically pissed off the nobility and the king because they were having to pay so much more for labor in a time of high inflation, which, of course, is very interesting because that's exactly what's happening in um, our own current situation is inflation um, combined with um, a really radical change. And the labor shortage. And the labor shortage. So in any case, as usual, what they tried to do was pass laws to prevent laborers. You know, they tried to go back to the old thing the instead of, yeah, exactly, of making laborers um, not have any kind of bargaining power. And as is usual for those kinds of laws, they did not work out in the long, end, in the long term. And the feudal system... Uh, came to um, a halt um, and, and sort of led to a lot of the modern uh, labor practices that we think of today. But in case of the sheriff, we could use that scene to show that, you know, those people were in the pillory because they were trying to charge too much for their little glimpses of what medieval society, how it was structured, how it was changing, was a real opportunity for us to show those different aspects of the Middle Ages in the course of telling the narrative. I have a, an unusual one. Now, there's another part of the story that I found very interesting. I think a lot of people would like this, but I don't know if they would do it. There's a tournament involved, right, that if you win, you wipe out the deaths. But what happens if you lose? In the in the tournament, um, yeah. So we because everybody thinks about um, jousting in the Middle Ages, um, we felt that, that we obviously had to include one in in our story and so um the, again because of there this also takes place during the lethal and could also train them for battle and so um there there is a, a tournament which most people don't know that that a tournament consisted of more than one event um there is the jousting that most of us know about but there's also the melee um which is when uh Groups of knights would fight each other on an open battlefield um, with blunted lances and swords. And what they would do is they would um, fight until they had defeated their opponent, and then they would take them ransom. And um, that it was a, a way for knights and other nobility to get money because if they were one of the better fighters, they could defeat their their opponents in the melee and take them ransom. And it, that was one of the interesting things we found was that the word parole comes from the French word for word. And um, when you took a knight ransom on the battlefield during the melee, the knight had to be released and, and guarantee that the ransom would be paid would have to give their word for parole. And so that is how we came to the legal term used now for parole, which is exactly the same concept, which is you put up money to guarantee that you will come back and face trial. And so it, it's a, just a, one of the interesting tidbits that we learned and, and were able to include in the book. Um, but uh, we also, um, after we had written the book, we decided we wanted to get a real experience um, uh, of uh, that, that our characters did. And what, so what did we do best? So I found a place in uh, California where we could actually take dousing lessons. Um, and so Boyd and I actually went dousing, and it was pretty amazing. Both of us had been on a horse before, but not in the recent past, and we were never particularly accomplished horse people. And so we got to this place, and the guy said, okay, here 
tough day. We had a whole new um, sort of appreciation for what medieval knights did because it was the skill, it was the strength, and it was it was really physically very very demanding. And the the skill level because there's a lot to think about. You have to do this thing first and then this, and you have and and kids, while riding a horse. While riding a horse, I mean, it was it was pretty amazing. We 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 definitely had a new understanding of what uh, Gerard Fox would have gone through at his jousting. Yeah, just a little inkling because we had somebody leading around our horse, yeah. and we didn't have the full armor on, and we weren't carrying, we carried the lance or the shield, but not both at the same time. Although we did have the big, great helmet on where you could only see through a slit in it, and that, that was gave a new, literally new perspective yeah. on what it must must have been like to fight with all of that equipment on. Yeah, yeah. So it it was a lot. Um, and we were just, we were glad that we were just doing it for fun because, Fran, you had asked about the judicial part of the um, battle, which we also include in the book, because after the joust, there's a, a sort of battle to the death, as it were, and you asked what would happen. So if you were, if you were facing each other in a judicial battle in um, the Middle Ages with two people, who want to settle their difference. Also known as a trial by combat. Trial by combat. They put it into the hands of God because the idea was whoever won that judicial duel won because they had God on their side and therefore they were the ones telling the truth. And so what happened in the Middle Ages is either you battled to the actual death or if somebody asked for, um, it wasn't mercy, I can't remember the word, no. but if they asked, if they said, I'm done, then they would just be killed. So somebody yeah, would, would die. Be, yeah, they would be hanged if they said that they wanted mercy um, or wanted to end the battle. So, yeah, and it, it, in reality, um, most of the time there would be a long actual trial with lawyers and, and, and uh, evidence before the, the trial by combat would be ordered. But the king was the sovereign. He was the final decision maker. And if he decided that there would be a trial by combat the next day, then that would happen. Yeah. And so, so we just kind of speeded things up in the book. Yeah, and trial by combat really wasn't that common uh, by the 14th century. But there was a recent movie, and the, the book that it was based on was actually written by a friend of mine um, at UCLA um, that was about a judicial combat. So I don't know if you saw The Last Duel, um, but it was based on that very concept because the king did put it to a battle to the death. Before I forget, on Monday, the author of the Palat Scroll, on Tuesday, somebody we all know and love, me, Matthew Goldberg, Vanish Me, on the 26th. Occurrence on oh. the 31st. This book is really scary. Death Warrant. He created a television show that if you owe somebody owes debts, you can have yourself killed in order to pay off the debt. Kind of scary. On the second, the author of the Serpent's Dupe, and on the seventh, somebody we all know and love, Don Bentley. Zero Hour, the new Tom Clancy. And if you didn't read it, forget it. Jack Ryan Jr. is to a new height. So that's just some of what's coming up. Oh, I would be remiss if I didn't say, on June 27th, Tess Gerenson, listen to me. That issue would be really cool. So there's a backstory between um, Richard, between the, uh, the Cardinal, Richard and, and um, Fox's mother. How does that work? So, so during this story, you find out that that um, there is a, a past relationship between the cardinal and Gerard Fox's mother, Emmeline. And um, at at a certain point in the story, you you actually see um, them interact. And and we decided to add that late in the, the book because we we Fox talks about his mother a lot. She left him a book that that is very dear and sentimental to him and um, and her uh, what happened to her is very instrumental in the plot of the story and so we felt at some point that we actually had to dramatize um, the, what leads up to that event and so um, it, it just showed more 
about the uh, Cardinals' backstory and about why he's done what he's done, and also shows um, Gerard Fox with his relationship with his mother and why that was so important to him, and also with his father. Um, we, we also have flashbacks to Richard, his father, and to his brother James. Um, and, and really, when we, we were working on this, we realized that this story really is all about family, and family was really important in the Middle Ages, right? Yeah, family was the strongest ties, um, because in a time period, obviously, when all of the countries around were um, led by kings, the idea of blood genealogy was incredibly important. Um, and it was the idea, there was something, there was a concept called primogenitor um, in the Middle Ages, which meant that all of the wealth in a family and all of the land went to the firstborn son. And that plays a role in our book because um, Gerard Fox had an older brother who was supposed to inherit all of those lands, and the younger son was um, someone who either went into the church or became a knight errant and went around um, doing other kinds of things because he didn't have the responsibilities to the family that the eldest brother did. And so we played with that concept um, in the book um, a bit in terms of how these family dynamics worked, what you did with younger sons, um, what the responsibility of the eldest son uh, was about, and what the responsibility of women was, which was to produce sons. Um, so this was a really, really big deal in the Middle Ages. And one of the other concepts that plays into what happens between the cardinal and this family was the idea of excommunication. And I know that people in the modern age sort of know that word, but they have no idea of the impact that that would have in the Middle Ages. To excommunicate, um, and in this case, and in the church's case, you could excommunicate an entire family. Um, it was a powerful tool in the church's um, uh, sort of abilities because it, it wasn't only that you just couldn't, you know, celebrate mass. That was sort of the least of it. You were supposed to be shunned by everyone, you could have your lands and your uh, nobility taken, um, and of course there was the threat that you would die and, and live in hell everlasting. You couldn't even be buried in consecrated ground. So there were a lot of different aspects. So between sort of the church's power with excommunication and then these family dynamics, it created, uh, created a really rich tapestry against which the plot of our book could unfold. Well, how does this happen? Okay, this is a, two more questions. This one should take a few few minutes. Um, Fox becomes involved in a tournament, and there's a murder charge against three people, himself and two others. So how does he decide to, to settle this without getting killed? Well, that, that gets back to the uh, trial by combat that we talked about. Yeah. Um, again, we don't want to give away the the. Don't give it away, yeah. Gerard that got me nervous, is, let me tell you. It it comes about because of a uh, something he's unjustly accused of. And that's kind yeah, of a, I know. a running theme in the story that, that Gerard Fox continues to be unjustly um, uh, accused of crimes, really, that, that he did not commit. And so it's, it's kind of a constant, literally a constant battle mm. for Gerard to... Um, to try to, to buck these these charges against him, and um, it, it's really a, an ordeal for him. But but as you get through the story, you realize that it changes him as a person and, yeah. and changes what his, his life's goal is. Well, actually, it's very exciting to read that part, but I got nervous because I said, oh, gee, right. you know, he's my character. Well, that was our yeah, we wanted to make people nervous. <laughs> This is true. So how did they finally get to Abbasist Catherine, and what was the reason why they wanted to go there? And what was the problem that they faced before I asked that famous question that I always do in the end? Well, they, the relic that they're in possession of, um, they're trying to get it to safety. And there's yeah. only a few people that they would entrust it with. And one of them is Catherine, who is Lady Isabel's sister. And um, so a lot of the story is about finding where she is and how they can yeah. get to her. And the bad guys are trying to uh, also find out where, he, where she is so that they can intercept Fox and Isabel before they reach her. 
And um, so, so a lot of the story revolves around, again, because of the, the plague had killed so many people and caused such um, chaotic disruption in, in even the church that um, it, was, it could be very difficult to track down where somebody was. And so um, the, the story, a lot of the plot is about finding where she is um, from both sides so that they can get there. And then, and then of course, traveling during the Hundred Years' War between France yeah. and England was very difficult because they had to actually go across a war zone. And uh, that, that was very hard when you had to, uh, if you were caught by, by certain French uh, soldiers and you were English, you would be in big trouble and vice versa. And so um, you had to, what, what's great about our characters is that they were multilingual um, because of how they were raised. And so that gets them out of some jams. And, you know, it's, that's also, you know, not uncommon in this era, especially for nobles, because French was the language of the English court because many of the kings were you know, from France. And so they, uh, all the nobility spoke French as well as English. And so that, that is true for our characters as well. Um, but they're also very adept in languages, and that, that directly comes from Beth because she speaks multiple languages in her job. Well, basically, the title says a lot, too. I mean, they go through different places, and they have to be careful. Like you said, the soldiers in one, the soldiers of the other, marauders, the, the outlaws. It's a lawless land. That fits exactly the title of the story. It's it's a land practically yeah. without any without any safety. So you have to really take your life. I mean, that's the first scene alone where the driver gets killed, and she, you know, he saves her. And I thought that was so cool. And you wonder why he would risk his life for somebody that he doesn't know. So this is my famous question. This is not over yet, right? There's a sequel coming, right? I hope. Don't let me down, please. Yes, we are we are working on book two right now, and um, we're not going to give away who who or what it involves because that directly bears on on the, the lawless land. Um, but uh-huh. Gerard Fox will be back, and um, we'll get to see more of his adventures through Europe. In fact, in the fall, last fall, we went mm-hmm. to um, Italy and Greece to do research on new locations to feature in the story, and you know if. Uh, as the series goes on, we we would love to see him travel throughout Europe, um, basically so that we can go visit yeah, other places, places to do our research. <laughs> this is this is like yeah. So as long as you bring Fox back and you don't kill off Lady Isabel, I'm happy. Anyone else? Well, it doesn't matter. We'll see. So. <laughs> Oh, what <laughs> lessons about life and honoring the memory of his brother will he carry forward in the future? Will Fox carry forward in the future, Ohlone? Yeah, well, and one of the uh, we're also big animal lovers, and so one of the things mm-hmm. that we did in the book was give Fox another character that that will carry forward, and that is his horse, Zephyr. Um, oh, Zephyr good. has. Great sentimental value for him for for reasons you'll find in the story, um, yep. but also he's he's actually a character that affects the plot in very yep, he um, does. very real ways. And so if Zephyr weren't there, um, not be able to continue his story. So so he and actually Lady Isabel's horse, uh, Comus, uh, both are, feature very uh, importantly in the plot. So how do how do you um forget the sequel? Uh, where do you where do you what is what is that, what is next for you besides this? I'm oh, sorry, wait, wait a minute. How did you create the surprise ending? That's my question right there. I lost my glasses for a second. How do you surprise? The ending was like, oh my god. How do, without yeah, giving well, it away, we, uh, I was like, I was like, I stood up and said, way to go. But how yeah, did you create no, that? We uh, we we wanted to. Um, decide how the story was going to continue on in the future. And so we, yeah, yeah it's, hard, it's hard not to give it away, but, um, but uh, we, we really wanted to um, have a lot of big character arc changes for both Gerard Fox and Lady Isabel. And so they, um, 
that feeds into the kind of twist ending at the very last few pages of the book because it really feeds into the type of people they became as a result of everything they go through mm. in the story. Yeah. And so it really changes um, them as people and changes their outlook on life. And we're glad to hear that you had that reaction to the ending because that's exactly what we were hoping for. Yeah, well, that's that's me. Uh, <laughs> I, I I couldn't, like I said, I got ice and I couldn't put it down. And that hasn't happened with a book with that many pages in it in a long time. Um, so what <laughs> is next for both of you? And when am I? And when is this one coming out? So so the Lawless Land just came out last week, and we're working on the book. Um, the, the follow-up book for next year. As, as I said, we already did our location research in um, Italy and Greece, so you'll see whole new locations, which actually one of the, the cool things is that, again, they are, are 14th century locations that you can still visit mm-hmm. to this day, and they're virtually unchanged. Mm-hmm. And so it'll, again, be fun to see our character, and of course, they're all action scenes and you know exciting twists and and um, and uh, looking at these locations in new ways that that maybe somebody who's visiting them today wouldn't have thought of. Most people wouldn't even know about this time period, to be very honest, and most kids wouldn't know about it either. And I think this is great. And um, I'm going to ask my nephew, who's nine. He's he's brilliant. He reads like that. He reads stuff like this. If Robbie wants to read it, and maybe I'll get him a copy, preferably without his aunt's two dads in it. So, where can we find out about you and more about your work? Um, you, we are on social media. Uh, first and foremost, you can go to my website, which is BoydMorrison.com, and you'll find um, information about both Beth and me on there, and you'll find all my social media links on there. And then Beth mm-hmm. has her own social media links. Um, she is Beth Morrison Writer on both Instagram and Facebook. And on Twitter, she is Beth Morrison PhD. And it's fun. If people go onto our social media, they can actually see little movies of us doing our jousting and stuff. So we try to keep it, keep it lively and give people a feel for both the books and what life was like in the Middle Ages. And photographs that we took during our research trip. So you can see... You, if you're interested in the places that we feature in the book, you can see some of the photos of, of what we went and saw. That, that I'm definitely going to have to look at, that the photos, whatever. Right now I'm reading, um, as a matter of fact, next month I do this every every June. I don't know why, but I do. But I figure if Ruth uh, Witherspoon and Oprah Winfrey could come up with the books that they like, I can come up with the Josh Reviews top books of 2022 also. I can do that too. And I've done that before, so why not do it again? This book was fantastic. Thank you so very, very much. I learned a lot. And please promise me that I'm going to get the next one because I really I, I got to know what happens. I got to know what happens next. Everybody, do something kind for everybody. Maybe the pandemic will take a hike and realize you're negative and we don't want you here anymore. But this book brought a lot out to light. Those of you that don't know about the 14th century, this is a great book for kids and teens and everybody to read. Everybody have a great day. Boyd and Beth, thank you so much. Everybody have a great day and bye. Thank you. Thank you, friends.